Benjamin Lindsay are dangerously eclectic. Welcome again, my friends, to Dangerously Eclectic. This episode, we're going to be talking about music again. Uh, we don't necessarily have a thesis for this one, or at least I don't. But we last time we did gangster rap, and today we're going to do something that is a little bit more germane to where we grew up. And they're going to talk about the evolution of country music as a style. Tentatively, we have it entitled this episode from something, I don't know. Appalachia Alan. to the Old Town Road. Thank you, sir. Yep. That is my heterosexual You got to walk that Florida Georgia line, bro. You do. You do. <laughs> the Mendocino County line. So, yeah, that's, and I'm Ben, and the, you know, I, this is the music that really I grew up with. Um, I'm a metalhead and a punk fan as well. And I also have a love for gangster rap, but I really didn't find any of that stuff until my teens. My formative years, such as they were, was really spent listening to my parents' music, just like everybody else's is, and that would have, or my grandparents' music in a lot of cases, and that would have been the Statler Brothers or Conway Twitty on vinyl or in the car, C.J. McCall and Merle Haggard on 8-track. The When I first got into music and had cassettes, it was the Charlie Daniels band that I wore out two copies of A Decade of Hits. I guess you could do that with cassette tapes. And so, yeah, I um, am baptized in the, the blood of this music. Yeah, I um, it's not as, as deeply rooted in my childhood for me though it is in my genetics or my my family background certainly by the way uh at ben dangerously uh is ben's handle on the twitter machines and i am at eclectic heretic i feel like both of us are giving my name short shrift in the title but that's okay uh we tend to drag out the dangerously i mean we can start doing the eclectic we can do dangerously <laughs> no it doesn't really work the same way um you know growing up my mom was and my dad both uh were products of they were both born in 51 um so you know musically they got their stride in their teens and early 20s. They were products of the 60s and early 70s. So the Stones, Donovan, a lot of the British Invasion stuff, um, Wilson Pickett, you know, that kind of stuff is more what I grew up with in my wheelhouse. Um, my dad was a huge Elvis fan, which did edge into the country and the gospel, which gospel is a huge part of country music. Uh, we can't leave that out. and We won't. But... You know, and my grandmother was <laughs> the eight tracks my grandma had in the car were like the sound of music and, you know, Broadway musical type of stuff. So I didn't really get into country um, or country and Western as it would have been turned at certain points of our growing up until I was older. It kind of for me was a discovery, albeit one that took place in my 20s and early 30s. Uh, so later than Ben's with metal and punk, but it was a discovery I came to with some maturity. Um, but my family growing up, yeah, uh, bluegrass. Uh, and, and for me, I, I have a lot of family that, that was in East Tennessee, up Cock County, uh, 
you know, Roan County, some of the places that are up east in Knoxville that are edging into the mountains. I've got some family up in there. So I, I definitely grew up hearing it, but more for me from the hymnal gospel side than from the popular music side. And and we'll go, you know, we're going to start like like Ben said, we're going to start at Appalachia. So um, we're actually going to start before Appalachia. Yeah, we should. So rock on with you. Well, where I want to start this is I want to, and this includes Appalachia, but a lot of the, as is the story for a lot of American music, a lot of this, of course, springs from Black music, the blues, hymnals. And you, we have to remember some of the earliest, rec- I don't know when the earliest recording is. I know like the earliest recorded blues record was like in the 1920s, maybe um, 1930s. But before that, if you heard music, it was music somebody that either you or, or somebody in your family or, or town made. So it's just a bunch of guys guitars maybe some drums probably washboards or some kind of percussion playing music and there were these things called you know standards that everybody knew but nobody played them the same there was no radio there was no recorded music so a lot of the way that songs got introduced to places other than like the written um hymnals and shit like that was minstrel shows and they would travel from region to region, place to place, a lot of time performing in blackface because that was an acceptable way to introduce white audiences to African-American music, as terrible as that is, and would introduce songs and actually kind of codify the way the song was played. They'd be like, oh, that's how that song is supposed to sound. Well, and, and I would add that to some extent with with Appalachian music, at least, much like most of Appalachia, uh, and, and there's a form of poetry and art out there called Afrolachian, which is fantastic, and I highly encourage people to seek it out. Um, oh, God. Uh, Bianca Spriggs is one of my favorite Afrolachian poets. Um, anyway, the, there's a mix of old English, Scottish, Irish stuff going on which is common meter and and a lot of songs you'd be amazed how many songs even to even today are common meter um if you ever want to know if a song is common meter uh the gilligan's island song is common meter (laughs) and it's the one that amuses me the most because a lot of poet a lot of poets and poems uh are common meter almost everything in fact emily dickinson wrote uh is common meter so you can sing because I could not stop for death. He kindly stopped for me. The carriage held but just ourselves in immortality. Uh, <laughs> anything common meter will fit those. It's the same four bar progression that is that that did become to some extent when combined with African music with African rhythms became the four bar blues at least to some extent, um, those interplayed and you get that with bluegrass and you get that with Appalachian music in general, this blending of cultures that happened in these enclaves outside of what most of the country and the world at that point would have called civilized society. Yes. And 
I think it's always worth mentioning that probably the instrument that is most familiar with or symbolically tied to bluegrass is the banjo, and the banjo is an African instrument. Absolutely. Uh, the banjo, and and you have it blended, though, with the mandolin, mm -hmm. with, you know, um, the penny whistle, which is, is strictly uh a, a, a british isles thing and yet with the drums that were completely west african yeah it's it's one of the only, and nothing is original in america without black influence i mean yeah. let's just go ahead and say that because it's true but it's one of the most blended i think most mixed forms of music and maybe because it's been around so long and i think it's awesome that we are coming back around to where you know rap and country and everything else is blending um and we'll get back on the subject i, I swear to god in one second tangent uh <laughs> which is more warning than you usually get from me but we're we're listening to a lot of music these days from people that grew up with an ipod shuffle mm -hmm. or that and that don't have these genre defined ideas in their head that have simply heard a bunch of stuff they liked and thrown it together and made their own art. And I don't know that that's been happening in a reproducible form since close to the beginning of bluegrass and jazz. Uh, and they're around the same time in recording speak simply because RCA didn't invent the vinyl disc until 1930. So, you know, yeah, people were going out and recording stuff that people had been singing in the hills or singing in the swamps or wherever for however long, but, no, but not very the much before that. Well, probably not, no, but the, the mass American consciousness of music, other than what Ben said, as communicated via traveling musicians, minstrel shows, what have you, the mass American consciousness of music didn't start until the invention of the vinyl disc. And really until probably five to seven years after that, when it became easily commercially possible to play them in your home. Yeah, I would say that it's whenever, and I don't know this off the top of my head either, um, when radio, radios really began to get into people's homes, which I'm going to say is probably the mid 40s, maybe early 50s. I think it was before that. I mean, the, the fireside chats were big in World War II for a reason. Yeah, but that would, you would also have a lot of people gathering together for those. I mean, not just simply a family gathering right. in one home, but, but either way. But I still think that that probably goes back earlier, um, even than the invention of vinyl. Cause I mean, they were broadcasting, I know for a fact, they were broadcasting nationally appreciated. I mean, the Mercury Radio Theater War of the Worlds was 1930-something. And, and that was huge, right? So I, it, it goes back before vinyl. I, I don't know by how much, and certainly not commercially. But, but it that does, was 38. Was it 38? Yeah. Okay. But by that time, radio dramas had become a thing. They had mm -hmm. already established... I'm thinking it's got to be the 20s. That, that's all I'm saying. I, I think it's a little earlier than you're thinking by 10 or 20 years. But I also know, I mean, there wasn't a huge, there wasn't a huge market for it in World War One, And there was in World War Two. 
So I'm thinking you're looking at around that timeline. Basically, whenever they got away from vacuum tubes and <laughs> were able to start bringing this stuff into the home, you know, um, I, sometime we'll say 1920, 1925, I, well, somewhere in that age. In that so range. in 1920, radio really began broadcasting. In, 19, okay. in the 1930s, only 40% of American households owned a radio. Okay. By 19, in the 1940s, that jumps to 83%. Okay, so you are talking late 30s, early 40s before it's truly a ubiquitous medium. Right. Well, I mean, because if you think about it, uh, you know, in, in our the, the area that we grew up in and, and Appalachia would, would fall into this, even though neither one of us, we have family from there, but we're not from there ourselves. Just because radios were a thing don't mean they were a thing there. Not only because of the way AM signals work, but there wasn't electricity <laughs> right. in those areas until right. the creation of TVA. Yeah, um, and, and that we've covered that in our terrestrial radio episode. That yeah. I used to be able with AM radio to sit in my driveway in Paducah, Kentucky, and pick up New Orleans Zydeco and, and jazz stations and. Yeah, anyway. So we're gonna go ahead and jump in, or at least I am, Ben, if you're if you're good with that, uh, jump into the music side of it. Um and we're gonna we're gonna mention some songs as we go, but hopefully we're more interested. Please go listen to the songs because we have excellent taste. But <laughs> aside from that, um we're we're trying to cover kind of if we made a mixtape of an hour, hour and a half of country music from then to now, what would you get? And also cover the themes as, it, as things develop. And I'm going to start with what, to me, are the two, and I hope I'm not stealing one from you, Ben, though I may be. I'm going to start with, with the two quintessential uh, bluegrass songs, at least as they were recorded early on. And the first of those is Foggy Mountain Breakdown, pure instrumental bluegrass. Um, if you're going to listen to only one version of it, I highly encourage you to go find the Scruggs and Friends version uh, from around the 80s that has Vince Gill and uh, Steve Martin and... Oh God, uh, I don't know who else anyway, uh, it, but, but it's amazing. It's... It's a quintessential mountain music only music song. And while I love authentic bluegrass, people that sing with fake accents over country and bluegrass music, I cannot stand it. And yes, I can tell. And I don't. And so instrumental is the first place I'm going to go. Um, I'm going to throw my second one at you and then Ben, I'll let you comment whatever you got on either of the two. That's the pure musical side of it to me. And then I'll bring in the gospel side, which I'm going to do with the Carter family and may the circle be unbroken. Um, which is bluegrass, though it wasn't labeled that, um, the twang of it, the rhythms of it, and it's a funky rhythm. It's not a normal rhythm you would hear in a current pop song. It's, it's a mountain rhythm. Um, 
and you could go always look on the sunny side, but to me, may the circle be unbroken with its ties to the gospel roots and the fact that right there early on, they're coming to take mama away in the hearse. I mean, <laughs> it's it's kind of sets the tone uh, of what would become country and bluegrass music. Well, that's that the incorporation of, of a lot of those old folk and not ne- gospel inspired, though not necessarily being gospel. So I, I definitely right. agree with that. But just um, and I've always said that folk music is just country music for people who don't like southern accents. But, I would agree with that. <laughs> In fact, I think Bob Dylan has one of the better country songs that I'm going to mention this broadcast. Yeah, I won't be mentioning Bob Dylan. I will. Um, so one thing that I, I want to say before I start listening to songs is I want to go back to the banjo. The banjo is a central instrument in bluegrass, and it actually forced innovation in guitars. Because if you're playing in a loud, uh, a live setting, banjos have a metal ring on the outside, if you've never seen a banjo before, for like the eight people in the audience who listen to this who haven't. <laughs> which acts as a resonator, which makes them very, very loud live. So that had led to new innovations in guitar technology to make them louder to be able to keep up. Yeah, and you ended up with those deeper bodies with with a more booming sound. Yeah, um, like X-bracing and shit like that that they took from violins. Yep. And, and honestly, even just the fact that the banjo has five strings, mm-hmm versus the guitar six if if you play either of them um it really changes what you're doing with the music because a banjo and standard tuning is open and what that means is that if you simply play all the strings if you strum a banjo it's a chord a guitar is not um a guitar adds an extra little nuance to it, but that open tuning, which you'll also find in steel guitar, which you'll find in a lot of country music staples, um, is so much easier to manipulate and play a melody and a background at the same time. Because if you're plucking all the strings, they're in tune. What you then do with your fingers and the strings you particularly choose, kind of like a bagpipe, enunci- and, and that's an influence that mixes music theory-wise with the African influence that I don't think enough people have looked at, is that you can lay these notes over, in a bagpipe you call it a drone, and a banjo I would call it over just a hum or, or a, a ring, but that open chord in the background makes improvisation and it just makes everything easier. It it makes it easier. A banjo though played well is harder to play. I would argue potentially than a guitar, a banjo just to get a tune out of is way easier. And, and that made it accessible, but it also made it so that that, that open tuning that that constant chord in the background led to in my opinion jam music uh which is i'm sorry to blame the banjo for that <laughs> but, 
and so, I've left Ben speechless. So yeah, I, mean, it's, <laughs> I don't have anything to add to that. Uh, so my first actual track I'm going to throw back is I'm going to suggest, and I don't remember when this orig was originally recorded, but it's a song that I know of, and I'm sure it's uh, a lot of these, um, as Alan stated when he gave you those two, uh, the bluegrass instrumental, um, a lot of the really big bluegrass songs, it's, it's kind of like jazz in a way that there are standards that almost every band does. Yep. And, but the artist in particular that I'm going to send you to look for is Charlie Monroe. The name love sounds Charlie familiar. It, yeah. Well, you, do you? Do you love Charlie Monroe? I honestly do. Yes. Okay. Uh, only, only in the last five to ten years, but yes. <laughs> well, uh, he's. I won't say that he's obscure, but he's like, the older brother. Well, of Bill hold Monroe. on. Okay, no, Bill's who I was thinking of. Actually, yes. Okay. I apologize, Bill Monroe. I love. Yes. Charlie, I don't know that I know. Um, like I said, he's the older brother of Bill, and both of them are Bill more so because he lived longer. Um, well, I don't know that he lived longer, but into more contemporary times because Charlie passed away in 75 um, and was born in 1903. Anyway, neither that's, that's neither here nor there. He did a lot of traveling around during the Depression, and he has a song called The Penitentiary Blues which I suspect because of the name is actually a blues song that they just played in a bluegrass style. Um, seek it out and listen to it. It's a song about what you think it is, how bad it sucks to be in prison, which is, and the reason that I chose that is because again, it shows those connections to the Delta blues and the Appalachian bluegrass. A lot of the, not only the, the style of music is similar, though it doesn't sound exactly the same, but a lot of the lyrical themes are very similar in what they're being touched on about how bad it sucks to have your a woman betray you, how you just got to kill a man every now and again, and how bad it sucks <laughs> to be in prison and all these other things. You know, that's interesting. And it made me think of something. It, it really is blues as well blues and bluegrass and country they're they're and i'm not saying this to denigrate them they're lower class music they're the music of the people right folk music same thing it's the music of the people it's yeah here's how the world is and yeah it fucking sucks <laughs> and there's jack shit most of us can do about it but we're still here and we're singing um, and that that spirit ties blues and bluegrass maybe better together than I think anything had in my head that that's I love that well and Charlie Monroe and the rest of the, the Monroes um, there was another brother whose name I'm not sure uh, Birch maybe I'm not sure I don't remember anyway you'll, you're gonna hear that a lot tonight because my memory is shit after a long day. <laughs> but anyway, how they kind of gained their fame uh, as we get into the later 30s, and this kind of goes to, to Elle's point earlier about the radio, is what really became the prime mover for a lot of artists were these sponsored radio um, musical variety shows. The Monroes played on one called the National Barn Dance, which was out of like Evansville, Indiana, or somewhere around in Indiana. 
the the next artist that I'm going to list gained his fame on the Louisiana Hayride. And that is, uh, you know, I'm kind of going to who's the, considered the grandfather and I'm going to have you go listen to the, the Hillbilly Shakespeare and listen to Hank Williams, um, specifically the track that I would, uh, out of his Google that I would have you listen to is I'm so lonesome I could cry. Because the lyrics of that, I mean, it's one of those things, that song was recorded in like the 1951, so it's been around for fucking ever. But if you go listen to it, there are actually very good lines of poetry that elevate the writing above, I'm not going to say everything that was going on at the time, but above a lot of stuff, you know, and just made a deeper connection. It's actually poetry, which you can't say for every song then or now, no matter how much they meet a rhyming scheme or the meter or any of that stuff. And now I will let you comment. I can't hear you. Are you muted? I am muted. So before we jump to <laughs> anything else, thank you for acknowledging that I was speaking into the void there, which I do anyway. But um, WSM Radio uh, maybe more of a driving factor in much of this i mean that was the barn dance saturday night that was the grand Ole opry mm -hmm. wsm started in 1925 um it's a currently 50,000 watt station sadly it's clear channel so you know you're not getting original crap from them anymore but <laughs> but back in the day that thing would bounce off the hills and into the hollers and you know most people could get WSM as far away as as Mobile, as far away as uh, as you know northern Louisiana, certainly uh, in the Bayou Country, and that you mentioned the Monroes, and no, I did not really know him, but I it made me think of Bill mm -hmm. and uh, Blue Moon of Kentucky is another one I would throw out there. Um, just the, and I think, and you'll forgive me if I wax poetic, <laughs> joke, not really, uh, about what Ben said, as someone who, who has written and published some poetry, as someone who is a English literature master's degree holder, um, there's nowhere other than blues country and rap that you truly find i won't say nowhere it's very very rare you find poetry in other genres um maybe not these days but if you want to go back even 10 years um there's there's some exceptions elvis costello has a few exceptions david bowie has a few exceptions there's some pop that is poetry but 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 the expression of the self, the the pure distilled essence of a moment of a person is very hard to find in music outside of some of these genres. Um, and just to so that we move on to Hank, but but also echoing your point, Lovesick Blues is one I was going to bring up. Um because there wasn't a lot of difference 
back in the day other than musical stylings how you interpreted blues versus country and i'll go back again to it it was music of the people man it was it was poor person music and and I, that's it's my music i'm not i'm certainly not trying to denigrate it by saying that but it's never been the country clubs set idea of valued music in the 20s and 30s when country and, and bluegrass and and blues were really kicking off hard these are still the the upper class people the upper middle class people are still people that are going to the theater to see wagner or short movies of really frou-frou concerts and yeah everybody went (laughs) because what else was there to do but but it wasn't it wasn't the people's music and and it is now or, or it became that then is i guess what i'm trying to say well i will say that it was excuse me i will say that it was still the people's music before hank williams what hank williams did really is he pushes country away from bluegrass in the sense that if you want to think of, in the way that we were talking about bluegrass and religious music, that it's themes of that are usually strongly religious or family-based, and it's set in a rural setting. Hank kind of pushes things into the city and that it is more about going to bars. I mean, not necessarily the two songs. Well, no, but he universalizes it. That's that's true. It's kind of like the Industrial Revolution comes to folk music. You know, and he creates something called Honky Tonk, um, which- Badonkadonk? Badonkadonk, honky tonk, badonkadonk. But yeah, so I mean, that's where we get some of the stuff that has become tropes today and later again becomes further uh, revolutionized by Allo Country. Uh, But it's just the, you know, oh gosh, if you got the money, honey, I got the time. Think of that song. Yeah. Uh, You know, and, and so it becomes something else, but it becomes something for a more still predominantly white, but urban American who is living in an urban setting and the rural songs, the completely rural songs about living in the holler and stuff like that don't necessarily fit. And for young people it's kind looking of to have like, a good time, something they could dance to. Right. No, it's kind of like when the when the poetry and movements of the industrial age came along and got rid of the pastoral. It's just that, yeah, okay, you may live in the country, but you're no longer disconnected from this. This is the new reality. And whether you want to or not, just like the Cowboys could now ride in to town and and meet the things that they wanted or didn't want or whatever. We'll get to that when we get to the Western side of country and Western. But... <laughs> But it's it's the idea that, no, you're not disconnected. No, it's not just your little rural community anymore. That that makes a lot of sense to me. So what is your next song, my friend? Um, well, I gave you the Hank one. Um, 
I'm reluctant to jump too much further forward. So if you've got anything else during the 50s or early 60s, I'd like to let you hit that because to me, and not that there's not other great music that doesn't deserve to be mentioned, but to me, things don't really change till the Vietnam era in country music once Hank comes along. They don't change much. That's my opinion. I mean, Patsy Cline, so you bring in the female side of it. If you want to do, you know, I go out walking or I fall to pieces in in the early 60s. But, but, But the overall, to me, movement of the genre doesn't change that much till the Vietnam era. I would argue that a little bit, but I'm going to go backwards um, just some, because now I want to talk about, Elle has mentioned country and Western a couple of times. Western was its own genre, and some people consider it to be its own genre. So I want to talk about the development of that a little bit. Please do. And so Western is kind of, if, Country is a derivation of bluegrass. Western is basically those same influences that kind of countrify bluegrass, but it's happening to big band music. That's true, and I never thought of that. That's awesome. So if you listen to a Western band, it's going to have a brass in it. It's going to have like, you know, that kind of sound. And although he is not the first person to, to have done it, uh, the person that I'm going to give credit to and mention here is Bob Wills, because Bob Wills is still the king. Bob Wills is awesome. And, and just just briefly, and I'll, I'll let you keep going, but some of that brass influence, I would argue, isn't just big band, and this is where I think it ties maybe even more closely to country. Some of that is is a Mexican-American, Mexican-Spanish influence that you know yet again ties another subculture into something seminal to the music and popular voice of our people but yeah well it's also a derivation of jazz too right so So this is now black mexican and white yeah (laughs) so here is what a typical swing band had as members a fiddle player, a bass fiddle player, an acoustic guitar player, a banjo player, a steel guitar, piano, drums, trumpets, trombones, and saxophones. Wow. So by the time it gets to the cities in the 30s and 40s, it's been urbanized and you've brought in more of a horn line and dropped some of those country influences, but wow. Yeah, uh, yes, to to an extent, and I mean it gets. Well, big I mean, too. I'm, I'm talking like big band swing. Oh like yeah, 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 and, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, historian Gary Ganell or Carrie Ganell, excuse me, has said of of swing music at, or Western swing is it's a bastard child that is neither country nor jazz is willing to accept into their own house. But in my opinion, they are an important part of both genres. And if you listen to it, I can agree with that because it has a lot of the improvisational phrasing of jazz because a lot of times this would be done in a kind of call call and response improvisation in that you would have bob wills or whoever the band leader was 
they would play a lick and then they would point to one of the other musicians yes, and they which would is a, a hallmark solo. of jazz yes mm-hmm. and swing yeah um yeah your piano player lays down a lick your guitar player has to pick it up your guitar player looks at your fiddle player who has to riff off of it yeah and so they are another one because uh bob wills for a time was uh gosh what is the name of that damn they were sponsored on one of these uh, radio programs. Um, was it Mercury? No, it was a light crust doughboy. Okay. <laughs> the light crust doughboys. Yeah. They were crackers in case you had any. <laughs> well, and it was like, it was a, uh, um, it's either a bread company or a flour company that was sponsoring them. So, you know, whatever. But go listen to San Antonio Rose. That's the song. That's an amazing song. Yeah. Um, and you're right. And and Western, I hadn't realized maybe the depth of it. I understood some of its influence, especially when it came in in the mid to late 60s, early 70s. I hadn't really realized what it was born from. So that's awesome. Oh, yeah, man. It goes back to like the late 30s. early. That's And 20s. see, I did not know that at all. Um so we've got the country and western i'm i'm gonna bring it up to where in my opinion it began moving to some extent to the modern age versus what had come before and to me that line of delineation is probably roger miller's king of the road um that's one of the first songs now, don't get me wrong, all country, western, blues, jazz, all these songs have acknowledged the detrimental impact of the man and <laughs> what the government does to you. That was the first place that I think country, at least to me, as far as popular music goes, that was the first place where it started to find its voice as a counterculture or if not a counterculture, at least a subculture of, yeah, okay, y'all say this, but (laughs) um, the idea of traveling the country, of of seeing everything, and really, it's crazy given how far apart they are in time. I have a hard time connecting king of the road with anything more strongly than i do grapes of wrath um which of course is ridiculous on its surface but this time of discontent of energy crisis of let's just go somewhere else and finding out that no matter where you go there you are um that song is incredibly powerful to me and and uh, to me at least that's the song that kind of moves country to where it was going when it becomes outlaw country that leads to coal miner's daughter that leads to coat of many colors and not that these these poverty narratives haven't always been there but that they become predominant that they become the underdog in a rigged system to me to some extent at least that goes back to king of the road interesting 
Um, hmm, I'd have to think about that some more before I really could fully support it or disagree with it. I do think that that's a a really important song just because Roger Miller was such a great songwriter and that's such and a great a, song. It's a turning point is all I'm really saying. Um, yeah, but it's one of many turning points. <laughs> yes, it is. So, you know, and I, that's why this, that's where you kind of get into the subjective area of, of talking about this, because I, I don't disagree that it's a turning point. I just don't know if I think it's as much of a turning point in the way that I conceptualize country music in the, in, in the way that you do. And I'm not saying it didn't influence right. those people, but... Um, well, I mean, and, and we're talking about three years difference between that and another song that I would put on my list, which is Harper Valley PTA. Um, yeah, it, it, it's just and it's not that the that, that earlier earlier artists weren't. I, I don't want to say anti. Yeah, I do. Anti system, anti because they're poor, they're impoverished. They're, but but it wasn't to me a sense of rebellion against an ordered system that it became with um, songs like that take this job and shove it that was yes yes that that's that sort of that feel. is much more directly confrontational well and that's there, the late 70s not the late 60s so well I mean, but there's but some like me, really there confrontational is, stuff in the 20s and 30s too but anyway. right, there is but it's not i guess economic no it is I, you're right you're right well, what I was going to say was it's, it's a vagabond song. So it's kind of like the hobo song. So, you know, he never uses that term and you, but you kind of get the sense that he hops. Well, he says that he hops trains. Yeah. Um, you know, and, and so it's kind of a throwback to that, but it makes it cool in a way that I don't know that earlier hobo songs did. That, that's it to me. And, and maybe that's a function not of the song, but of the culture, yeah. which is where I would agree with you if you disagree with me, is that that's, that's a function of the same type of song in a different context. Mm -hmm. But there was at that point an idea that, yeah, back in the 20s and the 30s, back when Hoovervilles were a big deal and, you know, people were trying to get over the great depression I, it was to some extent romantic to just jump a fucking train i mean, well shit in the 80s i take a midnight train going anywhere yeah. right <laughs> so there there's something about throwing it to the wind and the answer my friend is blowing in that said wind but <laughs> But <laughs> I, I think that that's when that counterculture, that that movement of the 60s against the baby boomer, leave it to beaver, my three sons 50s, really, at least in music started to come out, at least in popular music. Now, it was there in other forms of music but not in any that i'm aware of that were so widely consumed again granted because they were white people doing it but well i i don't know that country ever had the listenership of rock or pop i really don't and maybe it did 
Um, I just get a sense that it doesn't. I mean, I think it has millions of listeners and does so to this day. There's an argument from Billboard, at least, that in the mid to late 70s, country was basically equivalent to pop. Okay. Maybe so. Um, I don't know. There's an argument to be made there that starting with, say, Blue Eyes Crying in the Rain and and Willie and, and... it's an argument it's not legitimate probably but it was very 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 popular in the mid to late 70s early 80s it was up there really close with a market with pop okay that's possible and i would say that really early especially the honky-tonk stuff because really what transforms honky-tonk country into rock and roll is the incorporation of electric guitar and stealing up even more stuff from black musicians kiss an angel good morning well that's several years later but yeah <laughs> yeah so, okay fair enough I don't so um, uh, you said you didn't think that there was a bit another big stylistic shift to the vietnam war and i disagree with that because i'm going to talk a little bit about the nashville sound hit it hit it so the nashville sound is what they call the sound that started coming out of nashville where you had all these big record labels at the time. You had um, RCA, Columbia, DECA, all in Nashville, at least their country music thing. And what they did is they they took the rough-hewn country music that was honky-tonk and started tinkering with it and replacing elements. And they didn't go in the direction of rock and roll necessarily, but they took the fiddles and the steel guitar and most of that. I mean, Hank Williams infamously is a, a nasal vocalist and there were other nasal vocalists in the honky-tonk sound. And they started layering strings and background vocals and you get more of the crooner style singing and you get something. It's, yeah. if, if you think about um, the wall of sound, it's not exactly the same, but it's the same. No, concept. but it, it yeah, and that's ag- that's actually exactly what came to mind for me was like the Phil Spectorization of country music. Yeah, and and so you get stuff. Um, the the song that I would I would recommend that you go listen to to really get a sense of this is "Make the World Go Away" by Eddie Arnold. Oh wow, yeah, I I hardly even think of that as country, but you're right. It, it's considered country in, in that time. I mean, solid country gold. Yeah, but it's pop. I mean, no, it is. It, yeah, it's yeah. complete total. It's it's pop. So no, I get your point exactly. I just that had never even hardly occurred to me that that was country music. Um, if that kind of transitions a little bit in the sixties with what I'm going to talk about why here in a little bit, but it transitions to this thing called country politan, which has even more, you know, they started doing even lusher string arrangements. So does that divide, and I can't believe we've gone this long without mentioning him, but does that maybe kind of divide on Johnny Cash or right around that sound? I mean, I walk the line well, all that early 50s stuff, um, I would consider that, even though he didn't really sing in that style, I would probably consider that closer to honky-tonk, because that's okay. so so basic. It is, but but to me, that's sort of where, in my 
and again, less experienced worldview, but that's kind of where country versus pop sort of started to diverge for mm -hmm. me. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's entirely possible. And I, I can't say because I haven't listened to enough of his early stuff other than like the big things. Well, Jackson and yeah. Yeah, yeah. He might have had a couple of Nashville Sound albums because I know that Waylon Jennings did. Um, Which seems ridiculous now that you look back. But yeah. yeah. Well, I mean, even if you go back and look at old, at first they tried to make Willie. I mean, yeah, they you did. know, clean cut out there in a suit singing a song for and blue eyes crying in the rain is maybe my favorite country song of all time but yeah which he didn't actually write but i know but i don't care he did it but anyway so <laughs> then you get the country politan thing and in that association with kind of pop music is still pretty strong um and i'm going to list a couple of different songs here to show that there is some gradient in these categories that i'm painting okay Behind Closed Doors is a Countrypolitan song by Charlie Rich. Mm. Great song. Pretty fucking close to pop. Conversely, yeah. The Grand Tour by George Jones, which uses all those same elements of make that um, Behind Closed Doors a Countrypolitan song, but I consider that country. Like well, hardcore yeah. country. You know, now that, now that you say that, if you want to go back, and, and hell, I guess, honestly, Johnny Cash was really pop, which is mind-blowing to me, but he was back in the 50s. I mean... Well, he was rock and roll, but rock and roll was pop then. Right, right. So, Country Roads. Yeah. John Denver, man. That's mm -hmm. that's not country. I mean, not yeah. by what you're saying. That is pop. Um, yeah. Uh, well, hell, fancy. That was a crossover song. Yeah, fancy later on. Mm -hmm. I, I mean, and even... I just, even honestly, if you want to go back and look at it, and this one may be stepping on the toes of somebody you wore out some tapes of, Devil Went Down to George is a pop song. Um, is it really? Damn close. I mean, it, I think it was overtaken and became <laughs> pop. I think pop's kind of stole that. But I always consider Charlie Daniels really close to just being Southern rock. Well, okay, yes, but not country, not the way no exactly it's well, by the rock. 80s that stuff was incorporated into to country too it was and yes i mean it's skinnered and it's but it's alabama which i had thought was a country band until we started having this conversation <laughs> and i realized is not a country band they're southern rock uh alabama <laughs> yes I would consider them a country politan or something. Well, uh, okay, maybe way. country politan light, if that's what you're going with. <laughs> but I mean, damn, dude. No, that's that's eye-opening. Roll on. Well, and the reason that you have this shift from the Nashville sound into country politan, to which we will eventually get to the outlaw movement, which is a, a rejection of all that and kind of going back to the roots and bringing back in steel guitars and all this other stuff so and they they went back to lukenbach texas is that... indeed they did <laughs> but it's the bakersfield sound which comes out of bakersfield california the primary artist that everybody's going to know from that is buck owens and the buckaroos although merle haggard is also a great example of this 
and that this is stuff that and is Merle did Merle really did kind of reinvent the genre mm-hmm. so oh, I get yeah. where you're going with that yeah yeah um and that that's late 50s and early 60s that that's where you get it's heavily influenced by rock and roll there's a real defined backbeat for one of the first times in country music you have especially in the buckaroos um Buck Owens is a motherfucking awesome guitar Buck player. Buck Owens is insane. And he had a guy who was just as good in his band. Uh, what was his fucking name? Um, Don Rich. And uh, man, those dudes can play. And, you know, Buck Owens had like a, I think, something insane like a number one hit off of his first six records or something. I don't remember for sure. (laughs) But so it it takes that, that Texas swing element and some rock and roll and kind of combines it and, you know, go listen to streets of Bakersfield or tiger by the tail or any of that stuff, which I think the Beatles did a cover of really i i'd have to look that up but you're i would it wouldn't surprise me they were really hyper aware of good music wherever it came from yeah um that actually they covered act naturally i'm sorry okay. not talking about this no 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 worries um and, and you know maybe in kind of and I have no idea where he stood with the the Bakersfield sound but but if you're going to that 70s that early to mid 70s vibe uh and bringing kind of western swing into things marty robbins el paso is another song i had on my list to bring up that's a great story song that's a fantastic song it it is and it brings in something that really i feel we've under mentioned to now which is why i've skipped a bunch of songs that i have written down on my list here but but the reason i bring that one up is the fact that it's a story song and so many of the early songs were story songs they were you know how i ended up hanging on the hill while my lover is down in the town or whatever <laughs> but but they were story songs and that sound though and i hadn't differentiated this and so i'll bow to you on it as far as and that came later that i think i don't think he did that till 74 59 really yeah wow way earlier than i thought okay so it is in line with that era yeah that's Um, kind of a um straight up country and western i would say the the blending of the two styles yes and that's that's why it was on my list is to show that but but then you bring that storytelling style into a newer era Mm -hmm. and you know i'm and shit man we're just now up to like loretta and dolly and Kenny and <laughs> not quite. We're starting to get there. Well, all Maybe right. Some of the rock, early stuff. <laughs> rock on with your bad self. Um, you know, the Bakersfield sound crosses over with country rock. So Graham Parsons, Flying Burrito Brothers, Alan Eagles. Parsons. <laughs> yeah, the Alan Parsons project. <laughs> not really. Um, and, and and stuff like that. That 
that evolves out of that and i don't necessarily want to cover all of that shit but you know just so that you're aware well, no but but because by that time that had gone into rock or alt or pop or you, you know the genre became more and more defined which i'm sensing now is extraordinarily limiting and and i get kind of where i was at when we started this off where listen to some shit with a don't worry about genre throw together what you like because yeah well, genres are invented by record labels to sell albums. Much like franchises for movies. Yep. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So Merle Haggard, just go Mama Tried. Oh, God. Branded Man, whatever. I mean, but I just wanted to give him a shout out. Wasn't he one of the ones in the, uh, in the prison show with Johnny Cash? Um, I don't think he was in the prison show. I think he might have been watching the prison show. Okay, I thought he was in it. Um, not in it like in a good way. <laughs> uh, in it as in Johnny was there performing. Uh, no, it was. He was in San Quentin. Yeah, yeah, that's what I thought. So he well, was. I thought in San... when you said I, in it with, I thought you meant in the no. Band. No, 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 no. I meant he was in <laughs> the show. He was in San Quentin when, when Johnny Cash came through. Yeah. And uh, that's what actually got him to clean up and, and become a singer. I mean, and, and you know, without him, we don't have Willie. We don't have Chris Christopherson. I, <laughs> I well, well, Willie was already a thing, so... Saying we don't have Willie without him. All right, fine. You don't have Chris Christopherson, which <laughs> also means that if you go to a different genre, you don't have me and Bobby McGee, and the world is vastly poorer without that. So, yeah. <laughs> anyway. All right, move us on, man. Well, the next one that I want to talk about is my favorite subgenre, um, and that's Outlaw Country. <laughs> And I'm not laughing at Outlaw Country. I'm laughing because I love Archer. And if you haven't seen the season where Cheryl becomes Charlene and begins rolling around the country selling Outlaw Country as her musical brand, you need to go watch it. Outlaw Country! Anyway. Yeah. <laughs> so it really is kind of a a move back to honky tonk or rockabilly and really it has some amazing songwriters so it was real introspective lyrics um and just really kind of for me you know that's the stuff that my dad listened to so that's probably why i like it so much yeah. but yeah um johnny cash is considered in this Chris Christopherson, whom you mentioned, Waylon, Waylon Jennings, Jennings comes over to it. Willie Nelson, David uh, Alco, yep. Uh, Tanya Tucker, if you want a female, Billy Joe Shaver, yep. I mean, and Outlaw Towns Van Zant. Hell, if you want, I mean, I, Clark, yeah, yeah. It's just, it's an insanely rich deep genre yeah of music i mean and really are, if but... you want to go but well and i mean you can even go go further forward and go to steve earl or 
you know, uh, some of the guys that were later 80s, early 90s that were still at, oh shit, Hank the Third. I mean, that are still or were still performing in that outlaw genre. Well, the thing about Steve Barrel, Steve Barrel kind of got his start in the late 70s playing bass in, I think, Guy Clark's band. Really? I did not know that. Yeah. Okay. There's either Guy or Towns, and probably both, to be honest. Well, and I mean, obviously, you've got the Highwaymen then that come in later, but yeah, I did not know he was in, he was in the scene that early. Yeah. If you watch, and I'm going to make a movie recommendation here, or a documentary, technically, go watch Heartworn Highways. And not only will you see there's a, a big thing about David Allen Cohen there and his rhinestone nudie suits and all this <laughs> shit. Um, and playing in prisons because he was in prison and all this other stuff. And by the way, fucking fantastic songwriter. Um, oh, God, yes. Divers do it deeper. She used to love me a lot. I've been thinking too much lately. Sadly, the one that everybody knows, which is good, is she never even called me by my name. Which she didn't actually write. Really? See, Mm -hmm. and it's like one of the weaker ones, so that doesn't really surprise me, but I did not know that. No, uh, I can't remember who, Char, um, there are three songwriters on that. Okay. One of of them is John Prine, and John Prine refused to be credited. And God bless the man. May he rest in peace. That killed me. But yes. Because he didn't necessarily get the joke. He was like, I don't want to be associated with this song. Right. Then there's the guy who actually, um, it's Steve Goodwin, because he actually mentions him in the song. Yeah. A good friend of mine named Steve Goodwin wrote this song. And apparently David did change some lyrics in it and might be credited as a songwriter but it really was he just changed up a couple of of lines well and i knew his wife or i i I knew his wife got credit for some of them um i'm pretty sure she wrote if that ain't country uh deborah co yeah um anyway but he's still as as an artist it's hard to get more quintessentially that genre. Yeah. But where I was going to go is at the, towards the end of it, maybe at the very end of it, it's New Year's Eve. And it's at Guy Clark and his wife, Susanna Clark's house. And sitting around the table are all kinds of musicians. Two of the musicians at that table are two of the, which Guy Clark, Susanna Clark was actually a pretty damn good songwriter too in her own right. But Guy Clark and Towns Van Sant, for my money, are as good, if not better, songwriters than Bob Dylan. No, oh, Towns is... Yeesh. He's a better songwriter than Dylan. I won't give him a lyricist. He's a better songwriter. Sitting at that table are two people who I think are a scintilla maybe worse songwriters than Towns Van Sant and Guy Clark, and that's Steve Earle and Rodney Crowell. Oh, wow. I knew Steve Earle. So, <laughs> but that was filmed in like the late 70s is the reason I bring that up. Okay. Yeah, so it's not something a lot of people have seen. Yeah, well, we've um, seen it, 
<laughs> yes, I watched it with you, but I'm right. trying to act like I'm. <laughs> so let's move then, if you're good with it, to kind of the late 70s to mid 80s country revival sort of thing where you've got George Jones. You know, he stopped loving her today. And you've oh, got that was from the 60s. No, it wasn't. Mm -hmm. Was it really? Mm -hmm. Well, okay. The first album I heard it off of was in the 80s. <laughs> Are you sure? No, dude. Recorded 1979. Oh, that's okay. My bad. I was like, there's no way I didn't hear it for 20 years. Not with my but you family. Alive. <laughs> but I was in 77. I knew it wasn't <laughs> fucking... Well, yeah, but it wasn't 20 years old. Anyway, whatever. Okay, fair. He'd been around for that long. But you go from... And Dwight Yoakam's Nothing, which is one of my absolute favorite country songs of all time you move into that era which i would argue closes off slash opens up more to pop with garth brooks yeah but garth brooks doesn't come in until like the late 80s and 90s. no but that's the point i think you move from this late 70s to late 80s era without a ton of changes now there's out country I mean, don't get me wrong. One of the songs that is nearest and dearest to my heart and always will be Dolly's version of I Will Always Love You was 74 or 75. I, but, but you don't move into this new sensibility completely to me until you get to Garth. Um, I think that the 80s you still have trappings of country politan and you still have, cause I mean, the Mandrell sisters and I was country sure. when country wasn't cool. And, you know, uh, oh, Alabama. Well, um, the, uh, the Statler brothers. Yeah. The, sure. And then you also had guys that were still kind of doing the outlaw thing. Cause you still had the High Wound albums coming out then. Well, shit, had... Hank Jr. was still putting shit out, so it's not like it went away. But <laughs> Hank Jr. didn't start out as as outlaw. He kind of became an outlaw. Um, okay. And so you still had that. Country music was out there, but uh, uh, what really happens and what kills it is not so much and Garth gets a lot of... Um, blame for which this. he doesn't deserve in my opinion because he's well, a hell of an artist he is and yes it was super poppy but he figured out the the matrix and made a, a shitload of money exactly what killed it and you've already mentioned it in my opinion is clear channel because what you would have happen while you've had all these yeah. different sub genres is whenever the radio or the, excuse me the record labels were telling the pushing the the radio stations to play stuff that was falling out of favor with like quote unquote real country music fans. <laughs> right. Who were all about are. 30 to 50 by then. Right. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> um, they would stop listening to that and find another genre and radio play would, would drop and the, yeah. 
the music business would adjust after clear channel comes in and takes over everything fuck clear channel by the way just so we're clear where we stand on this podcast (laughs) the the record labels (laughs) are no longer doing that the internet becomes a thing in the 90s so people do what i did or the radio's not playing what i want to hear that's okay i can get it over here that's right the internet yeah and and to me there was no one bigger in that than garth and i kind of hate to admit it and i damn sure want to disown his whatever name he did the pop shit under uh what's that chris jenkins or something like chris yeah whatever (laughs) (laughs) but but yeah um i but seriously and you're the same age i was going to high school 92 93 you went to a dance did you not hear the dance you did no did you not hear friends in low places uh maybe not at a high school dance i did uh but you would also hear garth or not garth but that's what we're talking chris stapleton by the way yes boot scootin' boogie and the other well that was is that no, not, not. Gar- no, no okay fine i like chris stapleton tennessee whiskey and every bit of it but he anyway. fucked that song up yes he did but i still like him <laughs> and i won't bite you i'll hug you if i ever see you in person chris gaines chris gaines now he can suck a fat one <laughs> The thing is, that wasn't any different than what he had been doing. I don't and know. I never listened to it, so I can't say. I, I didn't either. I don't care. What are the odds that somebody that monetarily successful was going to risk anything? I'll guarantee you, <laughs> I shouldn't do this, but I will. And if I'm wrong, listeners, please correct me. I have a 99% certainty that Chris Gaines was nothing but rock and roll Garth Brooks and Garth Brooks was nothing but rock and roll or country Chris Gaines. If I'm wrong, prove it. I'll eat some crow. Uh, Maybe Chris Gaines has a ridiculously unappreciated release catalog. I'm pretty sure he only released one album, but you know what's fucking sad? It's that that album went double platinum. You know, um, just goes back to showing that, yeah, it came back around to pop, man. Right? I guess. Like I said, I don't. I haven't listened to it. It's supposed to be more rock than pop, but uh, again, I haven't listened to it. So well, I no, I'm, I'm talking about Garth's music in general. Oh. The dance had country trappings in much the same way that taylor swift's first few albums had country trappings but they're pop and there's nothing wrong with that i love pop music and i will fight a bitch over taylor swift's first few albums (laughs) but well here's the deal i mean it's not he wasn't i don't think he was any poppier than Trisha Yearwood or anybody else who was releasing albums at that time. But the Judds. 
I, I mean, no, Brooks and Dunn. Um, he wasn't. What happened with a lot of these artists? And I'm sorry to interrupt you, but let me no, say go this ahead. Let me go back. Is that their initial albums because they were made for country audiences are country with a little bit of pop influence because they were they were chasing the crossover hit sure. after Alabama and some of the Hank Williams Jr. stuff and and all these other things, um, Roseanne Cash. Well, and then it got to Shania who actually did it. Right. Well, no, a lot of these other artists did too for a song or two, but it happened uh, holistically. It wasn't right. It wasn't that they were trying to do it. It just happened. They had a, a song that everybody liked. It crossed over, became real big, and then they start chasing the dragon. Right. So, and, and really... I find it very interesting that you're using a heroin metaphor for this, but... Money's a hell of a drug, dude. <laughs> yes, it is. And... You see a lot of Garth stuff, especially like going to Baton Rouge. That has some pop elements and, and some Cajun elements, yeah. but that's pretty much a, a country song. Garth kind of ripped off a lot of his early stuff from Chris Ledoux. True. I mean, I guess he attributed him, so he, he, he cited a lot of his earlier <laughs> stuff from Chris Ledoux. <laughs> but, you know... But it wasn't an original thought. Right. <laughs> Correct. Um, but, you know, and that became more and more common. Uh, you go to, and I said Taylor Swift and I said Shania. So let's link them generationally and throw in Carrie Underwood. But these are not artists, and not that they should be, who wanted to appeal to only a certain demographic or a certain audience's taste i'm not suggesting though i have my doubts but that's what money does i'm not suggesting any of them didn't a hundred percent mean every song on every one of their albums i know they didn't but i'm i'm not i'm not gonna come out and specify but it it, it boils down to the fact i think and this is where I'm going to try and bring it into the 90s to the modern era that we're not that concerned with genre anymore because our identities aren't tied up with what music we listen to. And that's where yeah, you're shaking your head, but hold on, let me finish. I'm going to go ahead and then you can rebut. Um, we, that's where you get people like, oh God, Ashley. No, never mind. My wife's not around. Uh, the the artist, the hip Nelly. That's where you get artists like Nelly who do collabs with country artists. <laughs> um, <laughs> which I know you'll disagree with, but that's what they are. But is the elimination and I'm going to bow to you for like 20 minutes on this and just let you talk, but is the elimination of a genre, which is where I feel we've gotten to with most genres, if not all, is that truly a bad thing? Have we not gotten to where country music has infiltrated enough to be mainstream 
and that's that's what I've got to say. And and the floor is yours, my brother. Uh, okay, so I'm going to push back on the whole we have transcended genre thing because none of our IDs aren't tied to the music that we listen to. I think to, I think that you are are right from a certain point of view and for certain populations. But I know a lot of people and a lot of them younger than us who very much identify themselves by the music that they listen to. That's why there is all this, you know, it used to be you would have rock and roll, heavy metal, uh, arena rock, hair metal, blah, blah, blah. And now there's like progressive death metal, progressive <laughs> post-rock death metal, and all these other super genrecations. And that hasn't happened in everything. Right. But because people want a label for themselves as an identifier. They do. So I think that there are a lot of people, and I think that's just a product of being young when you're truly trying to form your identity and you don't necessarily know who you are. Because I was I was much more hung up on genres when I was younger too. It's like, oh, that's some pop bullshit. Now I'm just like, that's a good song. I don't care. Right. And 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 just to throw this out there for those of you listening who may need to hear it, it's okay to not know what your label is. And yeah, there can be like 80 fucking labels for gender or sexuality or whatever the fuck else. And it's cool. Be you. Yeah, no, All totally. Right. PSA, the more you know, is over. Yeah. So yes. As to whether country has infiltrated the mainstream enough to I don't I don't remember exactly how you worded it, but has um, country infiltrated the mainstream enough? No, I think it's the other way around. I think mainstream has invaded country enough. Now there are people, and I, I kind of consider myself one of them. I don't listen to a, a lot of mainstream radio for anything. Right. Um, well, most... and let's let's just go ahead and throw out for both of us that Jason Isbell is one of the most talented singer songwriters ever to walk the face of the earth. Yes, definitely. That you should go listen to some stuff from Drive By Truckers that there's a lot of indie music out there you haven't heard that needs to be listened to and that algorithms will not guide you to so they to might. that extent i see your point they might if you if if you are somebody who is a fairly genre faithful listener then i think the algorithms will find you stuff Right, but like Elizabeth Cook, who did My Heroin Addict Sister, uh, that song that I recommended to you. I don't know if you ever listened to it, but... I don't even remember you recommending that to me. Oh, dude, she's amazing. Um, the, the, you know, it, it goes past Casey Musgraves, guys. <laughs> and not that there's anything wrong with her. She's cute and she does good music, but... <laughs> there there are some statements being made out there in music in every genre and you mm -hmm. need to seek them out yeah good music is out there you just have to find it and it's easy to find nowadays although you have to slog through more of it to find it um and i don't remember where i was oh 
So I think that a lot of the elements of rock or pop or what have you have kind of gone into country and have diffused slowly through that. And that doesn't delegitimize the country that's being played today and that's played on country stations because every every generation because of the way that country music has evolved and really all music has evolved but we have to remember that the stuff that people that purists talk about rock and roll oh rock and roll was great back in the 50s and 60s it was still marketed at fucking teenagers popular music is made for teenagers so all popular music is meant to be pop music yep and you have other people who are creating music for other age categories, yes. But always remember that all music is trying to be popular music. Um, so with that, that doesn't said, mean you can't stretch outside adult contemporary. Well, no, no, totally, totally. Yeah. <laughs> with that said, every generation of country music fans, every 10, 15 years has said the stuff that they're playing on the radio now isn't real country music. Just like well, and that's true say. for metal or, yes. yeah, of course. Um, well, that's not rock. That's not, that hair music wasn't metal. Metal wasn't rock, whatever. Right. Um, I mean, I, I can take very basic genres like metal, rock, country, and define music to fit those categories. Sure. And say, oh, that's not really metal because it doesn't have these these attributes that i associate with but that's not what people are doing they're they're comparing it to what they're familiar with fitting into that category they're not saying oh this is done at more than 90 beats per minute this is what whatever you know genre defining numbers and definitions you want to put on it that's not what people are doing and and if nothing else, I, I think that's where I wanted to get with this episode is that it's okay <laughs> Do I particularly like Old Town Road? No. No, I do not. Do I still hold achy breaky heart against Billy Cyrus to some extent? Yes. Yes, I do. <laughs> Shut up, man. <laughs> but if you tell my heart, <laughs> okay. you still know all of it, motherfucker. Yeah, of course I freaking do. I can do the dance too. That's not a, that's, Oh, I would pay money to that's see that. completely how yeah, well you never will, but that's relevant. Yes. Um these are formative guys, these are influences. And and they influenced the musicians who are currently making the music as well as they influenced you. Don't expect honorableness or adherence to some sort of code that you didn't absorb just because now you think, oh, that's what good quote unquote whatever music should be. Yeah. And if we've done nothing else, I, I hope we've done that is just open up the idea that this genre this one genre alone has changed so much over less than a hundred years that you know (laughs) open your heads man (laughs) i mean i agree with you on all that 
And I don't like Florida Georgia line, and I didn't really care for um, Old Town Road. Not because I was against the premise of mixing those musical genres together. I just happen not to like those songs. It's a lyrically meaningless song. There are a lot of songs. Are <laughs> well, I mean, yeah, I know it. Is. <laughs> shut up but, don't you even say that loud enough my daughter can hear you, you shut up <laughs> um but yes um i and i i do think that the more that we mix all these disparate parts back together not that there's a unified music but the more the better music will be um yes it's it's facets on a gym Mm-hmm. You can't see them all at the same time, but this one may reflect in the light of country and hip hop. This one may reflect in the light of metal and bluegrass, thrash grass, by the way, yep. native howl, uh, thumbs Great. up to you guys. Go look it up. <laughs> so oh, they're very good. Yeah, I just quit. You know, if we, honest to God, if I get nothing across to anyone other than this, Ben, my message for this whole podcast would be quit fucking having a stick up your ass. <laughs> or, I mean, keep that stick up there and just listen to what you want to, but don't. Right. Don't, don't force the stick up someone else's. Right. That's, that's probably a better. That's a bad idea. Yes, um, I want to end this because we've been going, I don't even know how long. A Uh, long time. I want to end this on kind of a down note, because we are only a few weeks removed from the death of an artist who was only 38, um, whom I was a big fan of. And even though he had like six, maybe seven albums out, I think had not really hit his groove yet. I agree with that. Justin Towns Earl. Yeah. Um, So this was supposed to, we kind of got away from the mixtape analogy and we didn't really fill up um, the songs, but there is a couple of specific songs of his that I want to direct you to. And not necessarily the album cuts, because we live in the age of YouTube and the dude did a lot of concerts. And live is usually better. Usually, but um, so there's just a couple of tracks. Bear with me while I find them. I say, even though I'm going to edit that part out, uh, the wait. But there's, you know, he was a guy who, he's Stephen Earl's kid. He was named after Towns Van Sant. And he, he didn't really even know his dad until he was like 15 and he said in interviews you know at that time I I quit school to go play in my father's band even though I didn't really know him because I knew the only other option for me was to be like my mom's people and I'd either be selling drugs in jail of dad which is kind of haunting now that he is has passed away yeah um but look up mama's eyes and back in 2012 at at 
in Austin. He did a full performance for KEXP on the South by Southwest radio stage. KEXP is a radio station in Seattle. Go listen to that. It's about 30 minutes long. Um, his last album, The Saint of Lost Causes, I would direct you towards all of that. And just Am I That Lonely Tonight, which is also from the KEXP. But anyway, all of those, just go listen to them. And that to me, it, he isn't this, he isn't the outlaw country that his father is. And I'm a huge Steve Earl fan. And Steve Earl's actually released some just straight up blues and some bluegrass albums. But Justin Towns really brought in a lot more straight up blues into his playing than his dad did. And he had a very interesting way of playing the guitar. I highly recommend you check out. Well, thank you for listening. Uh, on that note, uh, we'll cut you loose. Well, thank you for listening to Season 3 of Dangerously Eclectic.